Endings can be a divisive thing. You know, in film, uh, a happy ending is satisfying in the traditional sense, but sometimes unrealistic. Uh, on the other hand, a tragic ending is often applauded for its realism while scorned by the average moviegoer in want of like basic entertainment. Like, I didn't come here to be bummed out. Uh, Open-ended novels, for example, confuse readers and divide audiences into a plethora of multiple interpretations. Uh, I've become convinced over the years that there's actually no good way to end a sketch on Saturday Night Live. Like, as funny as if any given skit can be, it has to end at some point, and it almost always feels abrupt and clumsy, like, oh, that's it. Like, you're just laughing, and then the skit's over. It's really weird. Maybe I'm the only one who notices that. Uh, but sermons are a bit more traditional and a bit more uniform. Often they end with like an emotional tug of the heartstrings or, or perhaps an encouraging word, pat on the back, some kind of inspiration for the week going ahead. Jesus of Nazareth, the greatest teacher who ever lived, the greatest sermonizer to ever live, ends his greatest sermon with a series of horrifying warnings. <laughs> So with that in mind, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. How are you guys? Feeling all right? Great. This is it, the conclusion to Jesus' most essential collection of teachings, his manifesto for life in the kingdom of God, the how-to for life as an apprentice of Jesus. And it ends with a minor chord, with a haunting warning and the warning begins with this line, Matthew 7, verse 24. Anyone who hears these words of mine. Now, uh, it's been quite a while since we began our series on the Gospel of Matthew. If you remember, that's what we're doing. So let's do a quick recap on the literary genius of this biography. Many of us read like a historical document from the first century, and we understandably overlook the brilliant subtext that permeates the entire construction of the actual document itself. To us, it often reads as a simple collection of vignettes. You know, Jesus did this, and then he did this. He said this, and then he said this, and so on. And Matthew is delivering a historical account of a real person, for sure. But between the lines, he's up to much, much more. Think of the Gospel of Matthew a bit like the way a play or a film is often divided into a three-act structure. Only Matthew's biography of Jesus is made up of five literary blocks. And Matthew conveniently separates each of these blocks with a very specific scene. See, each block concludes with an in-depth teaching from Jesus which itself ends with the same type of catchphrase, which is just a variation of, quote, when Jesus had finished saying these things. And you also get, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, when Jesus had finished these parables, when Jesus had finished saying these things. And finally, in chapter 26, we'll eventually get there a few years from now or whatever, when Jesus had finished saying all these things. Now, why five blocks? And why the specific structure? Matthew uh, is writing his particular biography, we think, to primarily a Jewish audience. So the five blocks of Matthew are intended to mirror the Torah, which was the Bible of Jesus' day and was itself built from five books. But it goes deeper than that. As I mentioned, each of the five blocks concludes with a sermon from Jesus, which are themselves intended to mirror the five sermons of Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. So Matthew is saying to his audience, who, an audience who would have poured over and studied the Torah every single day, he's saying with brilliant literary sophistication, hey, look, 
Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is teaching a new Torah. Jesus is leading a new exodus for a new Israel into a new kingdom. But it goes even deeper than that. Matthew does even more with numbers. So in the ancient world, uh, numerology, which is a branch of knowledge that deals with the significance of certain numbers, was widely considered to be a really important, really significant branch of study. So it really comes as no surprise that Matthew would exploit numerology in the elaborate construction of his particular gospel. So if you're wondering, like, well, why would he use that? It's because it was really popular at the time. It, it might be a, a bit like the way almost all of our modern worship music sounds identical in style and structure. So if we ever get out of this rut of homogeny, the people of the future, you know, the aliens or whatever, they're going to open the time capsule and all this, the albums will spill out or the, I guess, files, the data will spill out. And they'll go, hey, how come every single band in this time period all the worship bands were live recordings and all with delay pedals and four extra minutes of vamping long after the song should have ended. And we'll just say, that's just what we did at the time. So that's just our thing. But uh, back to numerology. That's the analogy. Uh, if you were to outline the Sermon on the Mount, it would break out into an intro, a thesis, followed by 14 teachings from Jesus, and then finally you get the outro. Now, each of the 14 teachings that make up the main body in, of the sermon have what scholars call a triadic structure, meaning each teaching is made up of three parts. So Dr. Glenn Stassen explains the structure this way. First, you have the traditional teaching when Jesus says, you have heard it said. And then you get a diagnosis of a vicious cycle where he'll say something like, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister, and he'll explain some kind of faulty behavior. And finally, you get the transforming initiative where Jesus says what you should do instead. You know, leave your gift in front of the altar and go be reconciled to your brother. In Hebrew thinking, get this, uh, both the number seven, which a lot of you probably knew, and then the number three as well represented perfection, or they represented completeness. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, you have 14 sets of three, which means, uh, well, basically this. This is, again, from Dr. Stassen. To Matthew, in his Jewish culture, seven is a number of completeness and goodness, like the seven days in which God created the earth. Fourteen is double completeness and goodness. Three is also a number of completeness. So three times 14 is triply, doubly complete. It is good, really good. And that is deliberate. The point we're getting at is that the Sermon on the Mount is certainly not the only thing Jesus said. We know that. It's not the only important thing that he did. But this is the most crucial of Jesus' teachings. This is the Jesus Creed, some scholars say. It is his best. It is the greatest sermon ever given. Matthew, the author of this biography, is drawing our attention to this set of teachings in ways that are both overt and subtle and obvious and obscure. And we need to understand that in order to understand Jesus' final warning and his closing address, which finally brings us back to the text itself. How are you guys doing? Still sharp? Great. Awesome. Back to Matthew 7, verse 24. Anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. 
Now, in Greek, the phrase puts them into practice is actually just a single word, poeo, and it can be translated as it is here, anyone who puts these into practice, or it could just be anyone who practices them, or anyone who does them, or anyone who acts on them, follows them, obeys them. This word actually shows up 22 times in the Sermon on the Mount, 10 of which are here in the outro, though a few of them get lost in your translations. The point is probably evident from the first two warnings that preceded this one, if you remember, and the a basic idea is this. It isn't enough to hear these teachings. You have to do them. Or else what? Well, to answer that question, Jesus does one of his favorite things. He suddenly starts telling a story. Let's keep reading Matthew 7. It goes on. Verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Now, Notice the order of things in Jesus' instruction. To avoid the awful fate of the foolish builder, one must accomplish two things. One, hear Jesus' teachings. Great. Two, put them into practice. And this seems fairly obvious, but notice that Jesus presupposes that one cannot obey him without knowing what he says. You and I live in this unique time in which there is an ongoing effort to sort of swallow up the way of Jesus in a blanket understanding of basic loving moral behavior. And don't get me wrong, the way of Jesus is certainly loving, it's certainly moral, um, but it is a specific and exclusive way of life. And by now, that much should be abundantly clear. It is, it is a narrow road, Jesus says. It is a small gate. It is, it's the secret to life, Jesus says. Everything else is a broad and easy road that leads to death. So when I read about famous figures and meet individuals who use the term like, I'm spiritual, not religious, or kind of the like Oprah ethos of, you know, what I get from Jesus is basically compassion and tolerance and love, I think, wow, it's interesting. It's a bit like someone saying, what I get from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is basically be nice to people. And to that, one could justifiably rebut, well, sure, that's in there. But Dr. King's message was about a way of life. It was about the eradication of racism. It was about the risky but determined example of nonviolent enemy love. It was about pulling up hate by the roots. It was about bringing down systems of dehumanization and oppression. Being nice is in there, for sure. But if someone were to summarize Dr. King this way, you'd be well within your rights by saying, it doesn't really sound like you've heard a lot of Dr. King. Similarly, when Jesus is summarized as one approach among many to, you know, basically be a good person, this presentation, frankly, represents, I think, a flagrant ignorance of the actual teachings of Jesus. And this is precisely why Jesus presupposes one cannot put his way of life into practice without knowing what he taught. And that's why we do this. That's why we spend hours, in this case weeks and months, poring over, dissecting, wrestling with the teachings of Jesus, the words he used, his world, his context, the inferences and implications, the, the metaphors and analogies. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be a student of a teacher. We must learn from our teacher. But, of course, knowing Jesus' teaching is just the preface 
uh, as, many, as much as many of us struggle with even that component of the formula, the true measure of a disciple is whether or not they put those teachings into practice. And this issue runs all the way back into the Old Testament in which for as long as God has longed to have a people of his own, those people often listen to God, but they do not live differently as a result. I think of this from Ezekiel, for example. My people come to you, as they usually do, and sit before you to hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. Their mouths speak of love, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. And Jesus says if his disciples will not only hear his teachings, but put them into practice also, they will receive from Jesus this incredible promise. They will become like a wise builder who construct for themselves a house that can weather a storm. Now, if you're familiar with this particular parable, it's easy to hear that promise and think, oh, that sounds nice. But uh, notice what Jesus doesn't promise. There's no prosperity, so to speak. In fact, there's a storm and a flood built into the promise. Uh, the storm is coming. That seems like an inevitability. The promise is that the house won't fall down with you in it. Scholar Dale Bruner puts it this way. D does he? I can just read it to you if, if, if he doesn't put it that, that way. Um, Jesus does not say that a house built on his words will glow in the dark or miraculously expand into a mansion, or in some other way become more impressive. The only impressive fact about this house is that it will still be standing when the storm is over. Matthew's Jesus almost always describes Christian life in terms of survival rather than sensation. Realistically, Jesus says the same storm hits thoughtful disciples as hits thoughtless ones. Obedience to Jesus' words is not so much protection from troubles as protection in them, just as a rock under a house does not shield from storms, but supports during them. Now, most of you, I would wager, have already seen this play out in your own lives. There are many who take up the way of Jesus until the storm comes. The intellectual crisis or the relational fallout or the affair or the death of a loved one, the collapse of a dream, and down the house comes with a great crash. That is, I think, one reason why the promise of Jesus is a house that weathers the storm rather than opulence or success or safety or security. If you track through the Sermon on the Mount to foresee the type of, Je the type of person that Jesus has in mind for his disciples to become, which is someone who's free from anger and lust, peace-loving and gentle and compassionate, not anxious, or, or proud or judgmental, man, that person is free from the tyranny of fear, free from greed and materialism and anxiety. Who needs opulence or success when you have that kind of freedom? The big, beautiful mansion, on the other hand, built without the teachings of Jesus put into practice, will come crashing down. The house built on the way of Jesus weathers the storm. Tonight, after all this work in the Sermon on the Mount, we need to hear this. This warning should grab you by the shoulders and shake you from apathy or indifference or ignorance because this is about insiders and outsiders. Jesus seems to love contrast as a teaching tool. Throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has consistently presented to his audience the dichotomy of one option set against another option. So when Jesus details his love for the scriptures, uh, the Torah, the Bible of his day, for example, he does so by warning that his disciples 
They need to learn to truly obey the scriptures. They need to learn the heart of God rather than simply following the rules to the letter of the law. So he contrasts his disciples against the existing religious teachers and leaders of the day. And he says, don't be like them, be like this. Jesus taught that there are actors, hypocrites, who make a great show of things like prayer and generosity and fasting, but he taught his disciples to concern themselves with God, not with the approval or the acclaim of other people. That's what hypocrites do. Don't be like them, be like this. Jesus taught the dangers of the corrupting power of money, which permeates an entire person, filling them with darkness. A healthy person, on the other hand, is marked by radical generosity not by fearfully clamoring for their own riches and their own possessions. Don't be concerned with money. Be like this. You have to choose God or money. Don't choose money. Choose God. There are those who worry and fret about tomorrow, about their safety and security, but Jesus taught his disciples to concern themselves with practicing the way of Jesus, and they would become free from concern. Don't be anxious be like this. And all of this climaxes into three stark warnings which conclude Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Don't choose the, wise, the wide road that leads to death. Choose the narrow road of following Jesus. Don't be fooled and led away from the truth by fake disciples who claim Jesus, but don't live for him. Continue in the truth. There are good trees and there are bad trees. There are insiders and there are outsiders. And then finally, Jesus presents one final dichotomy, which is perhaps the most haunting of them all, the wise and the foolish builder. Now, think for a moment about the setting of this last warning and the entire Sermon on the Mount, for that matter, in the original sense. Jesus is up on a hillside. He's in front of an audience. He's a teacher. They're his audience, his students. And he unpacks his manifesto. It's incredible. It's stark. It's convicting. It's controversial. It's stirring. It's magnetic. And then with the audience in the palm of his his hand, Matthew actually makes the point to say they were amazed. Jesus, the brilliant teacher, makes things strikingly personal all of a sudden. Up until now, he's been describing life in what he calls the kingdom of God. And of course, his teaching is directed at an audience, but he's been unpacking this whole new way to be a human being. Most of this, we assume, was brand new information to most, if not all, of his audience. And there's a lot to take, take in, even on just an intellectual level. But then, Jesus' final warning snaps his audience out of the hypothetical and into the immediacy of that moment. There's no like, hey, listen, this is a whole lot to take in. I understand that. Think about it. He doesn't say anything like, consider these words of mine and see if it works for you. There's no, man, ask God about this, mull it over, see if it works, and then get back to me if you want to be my disciple. In fact, Jesus' final warning isn't about a hypothetical disciple. It's not about someone who may or may not struggle with lust or greed from time to time. Jesus' final warning is directed to anyone who hears these words of mine, meaning every single person in his audience suddenly goes, oh, that's me. I imagine this jarring moment of clarity grips the audience. They sit up, their pulse is speeding up. They're saying, oh, anyone who, that's us. Dang it, now we've been here the whole time. That includes us. And then Jesus offers his final dichotomy. The one who does what the Sermon on the Mount teaches and the one who doesn't do what the Sermon on the Mount teaches. The one who teaches others how to live the way of Jesus and the one who does not teach others how to live the way of Jesus. And the parable is perhaps one of the most severe in all of the scriptures. And it's obviously a thinly veiled metaphor at best. 
And so, with the reality of what's at stake, theologian Klein Snodgrass, who has one of the funniest names I've ever heard, but also put things so bluntly that I was like, yikes, this is what he says about it. Anyone who hears Jesus' words and does not do them is a fool, is his translation of that parable. For Jesus, the only acceptable response to this collection of teachings is to stand up where you were on the hillside and say, okay, I guess we live like this from now on. There's something to be said, I think, about Jesus' interest in dichotomy. I remember years ago sitting in a meeting with other pastors and leaders, and we were having a conversation about how to best communicate what was a delicate issue. And I, you know, I was the youngest and the least experienced in the room, and I spoke up to kind of worry that if we weren't careful, we might mistakenly communicate the issue in us versus them language. And a close friend of mine graciously heard me out. He agreed with the things that I said that were accurate. And then he humbly offered a bit of pushback. He said, but you know, Jesus talks quite a bit about insiders and outsiders, children of light, children of darkness, sheep and goats, in and out. Even throughout the Sermon on the Mount itself, it becomes increasingly clear that Jesus believes there are real disciples and there are fakers. There are real disciples and hypocrites, real disciples and actors, real prophets and false prophets. And what's more, Jesus teaches that the status of being an insider or an outsider will determine who's in and who is out when God puts the world to rights. And then here, at the conclusion of this great manifesto, Jesus offers a final warning by describing again those who are in and those who are out, the wise and the foolish builder. And when Jesus paints his final portrait of who is in and who is out in one of his earlier warnings, it is a, portra a, a portrait of those who apply the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount. Anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. Now, before we end the teaching and this particular study of the Sermon on the Mount, believe me, it'll come up again and again and again. Let's acknowledge something together. To live all this out, in other words, to do what Jesus is saying here, to practice the way of Jesus, to hear these words and do them, it often feels like a, a horribly daunting task, right? Yes, yes, it's so fine to say. It's not a trick question. Yes, it feels like a horribly daunting task. This is precisely why we have oriented our entire church around this idea of practicing the way of Jesus. We believe, believe very much in both dimensions of Jesus' final instruction here, teaching and practice. So we want to learn and we want to do. And we do by way of the practices, meaning for most of us, if we simply walk out the door and try to live the Sermon on the Mount tomorrow, it'd be a bit like sitting my son back who's four in front of a piano and say, Beethoven's ninth, do it, try it. And the best he'll do, believe me, I've heard him in front of an instrument, the best he'll do is just bang his little fists on the keys and it'll create a dissonant cacophony and it's awful. You know, when people play the piano, they don't know how, it's just awful. Kids and pianos, no. And, um, but, but, what if we started him with piano lessons at a young age for years and years and years? What if he practiced all the time regularly with discipline and routine for a long time? Eventually, it's possible that he could become the type of person to play Beethoven's Ninth. I actually don't know how hard it is to do, but sounds like an easy example. And wait, listen, there's something that's even better about this for us. Jesus has given us a couple of aces up our sleeve. We have the Holy Spirit, and we have the community of God's people. To actually live the Sermon on the Mount requires practice. 
Yes. But it requires an incredible power beyond yourself to overcome your own brokenness, your own desires, essentially your own self. And that power is readily available in and through the Spirit of Jesus. If you follow Jesus, the Scriptures say you have the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead alive inside you, meaning you get to tap into that power when you'd like. And even that, you don't have to do alone but surrounded, bolstered, held up by the family of God, your community, the church. It doesn't mean that the Sermon on the Mount gets easy, but it is a bit like the whole piano analogy. Beethoven might be tough, but it isn't impossible. And you need to understand that when you think about this collection of teachings. You need to understand why it is that we constantly harp on the practices, on community, and on tapping into the power of the Holy Spirit. Because listen... You will not put the teachings of Jesus into practice without knowing them, and you will not be an apprentice of Jesus without putting his teachings into practice. The leadership team here at Van City often struggles with exactly how to impress upon our collective family and one another the value in each of our expressions of church, the gathering and the community, meaning, you know, there's folks who love to show up to community and have dinner with friends, they don't care much about the Sunday gathering. But the Sunday gathering is every bit as important as your community night. It is a place for our entire family to come together and worship, to learn, to take communion together, to remember Jesus, to hear from God's Spirit together, 80 some odd people, 100 people instead of 12. Stuff happens here that doesn't happen elsewhere. There's something beautiful and unique about Sunday evenings. And I'll hear, you know, community leaders tell me sometimes, well, you know, so-and-so doesn't come to church, but they say they listen to the podcast, as flattering as that is. But frankly, listen, there is a sacredness in having our family together in one place, even if it's just for a couple of hours. There are moments of intimacy with God and with one another that are not on a podcast. They cannot be recreated, even in your community, as beautiful as your community is. On the other hand, of course, there are inevitably some who undervalue the community and they'd just rather come to church in the same way but the other way, or, or maybe they undervalue the practices, they come to community, but they don't want to actually try the practices. The point I'm getting at, it's not a guilt trip for anyone. We've all faltered in, in various avenues of um, how we value church. The point is not to give you guys an advertisement for our church forms. The point is that a podcast won't lead you to transformation. Information alone won't do it. Information is great. I mean, my whole job hinges on it, so that's why I teach, but it isn't enough. Community alone won't do it. Community is crucial, absolutely, but you have to know the teachings of Jesus become empowered by his spirit to put them into practice. And I want all of that, and not just for myself. I want that for each and every one of you guys as well. I want it for us as a collective family for Van City Church. Um, And I tend to be, in my brokenness, a pessimist by default, so I'm not an idealist. I'm not after perfection. I'm not expecting some shiny, pretty picture of a best-case scenario. I just want us to try. I want us to give it a shot together. I want to see our entire family, with all of our collective shortcomings and brokenness, beautifully and awkwardly and clumsily stepping into what God's Spirit has to say for us. I want to see the weirdest, most awkward and shy person in this room 
prophesy over the most confident and charismatic person in this room. I want the introverts to learn the beauty of what it means to live in community with other people. I want the extroverts to learn to sit quietly in God's presence, alone with the scriptures. I want those who are left-leaning theologically to fall in love with the scriptures and the spiritual disciplines. I want those who are right-leaning theologically to learn enemy love and nonviolence. I want each and every one of us to have this Sermon on the Mount written on our hearts, so to speak. That when we get asked, can you actually live this way? We might reply, we can. It's not easy, we can. It's not idealism. It's not hopelessly unrealistic. Are you kidding me? The same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is alive in us. And we have one another. We have the teachings of our master readily available to us at all times. We can absolutely do this. We can absolutely do this. And we're not alone, not entirely of our own strength and ability, but with practice over time, empowered by the Holy Spirit and by the community of God's people. We can absolutely do this. Is playing Beethoven tough? I'm sure it is. Is it impossible? No. To end, let's look at the final two verses in Matthew 7. It says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, when the sermon had been concluded, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. So great speakers and, you know, rhetoricians, leaders, philosophers, they often appeal to truth from external sources, and wisely so. Like Tolstoy influenced Gandhi, who influenced Martin Luther King. Wise philosophers appeal to the wisdom that preceded theirs. Physicists still appeal to Einstein, biologists to Darwin, novelists to Dickens, filmmakers to Hitchcock, all that kind of stuff. In Jesus' day, <coughs> pardon me, in Jesus' day, it was common practice to quote develop and distribute truth from other rabbis who themselves developed truth from rabbis before them all the way back to the Torah. But Jesus claims to be more than just a conduit of truth. He is the source of truth. Jesus didn't simply deal in theory. He specialized in practice. Theologian Stanley Hauerwas says of these final verses, as we shall see as Matthew goes on, Jesus' life is but a commentary on the sermon. And the sermon is the exemplification of his life. What he teaches is not different from what he is. Is it any wonder that the crowds are astonished at his teachings? And yet astonishment is not the response that Jesus would have from those who hear him. He does not want our admiration. What he has taught, what he is, requires nothing else than our lives. Isn't it interesting that the most uh, bold, audacious claims of Jesus about himself, his identity, his authority, are mostly contained within this, his most important set of teachings. Think about it. Jesus claims throughout the Sermon on the Mount to be the gate that leads to life. He presents himself in a parable as the arbiter of who will be in and who will be out when the entire cosmos is set to rights. He even says that when people appeal to him on that day, they will claim to have done miracles in his name. Those who are denied participation in Jesus' new kingdom will be done so on the basis of not knowing who? Jesus. The punishment for not knowing Jesus is being sent away from Jesus. 
And when the sermon comes to its haunting conclusion, the warning is to hear these words of mine. Jesus is not appealing to an outside source himself. He is the authority. No wonder his audience was amazed. And isn't it incredible that more than 2,000 years later, here we are grappling with Jesus' teaching and with his claims to authority. So tonight, ask yourself, what will become of the house you are building with your life? And make no mistake, you are building a house. Whether you follow Jesus or not, whether you live by the Sermon on the Mount or not, you are building a house, so to speak. Yours may be a family, a career, a marriage, a passion project, money, image, a social media account. Everyone believes, consciously or subconsciously, that their foundation must be a stable one. Otherwise, why build it? And this is evidenced by the way that you spend your time and the way that you spend your money and your efforts and your energy. And in true Jesus-y fashion, he presents his way of life as the only stable foundation on which to, which to build our houses. Everything else falls with a great crash. And isn't this, again, classic Jesus? Because the grand finale of his manifesto is a dire warning, but he could have at least ended on a joyful note by revising the order. He could have said, man, the house of a foolish builder will get knocked down by a storm, but hey, the house of a wise builder will stand when the storm comes. But no, not Jesus. He ends his manifesto with a haunting minor chord. So the question for us, confronted with the teachings of Jesus, is what will we do? Now, before we end this particular study of the Sermon on the Mount and head into Matthew chapter 8 next week, let's just pause for a moment before we go to songs and the communion. We've said already, there's a good reason it's taken us so long to make it through these three chapters of Matthew because of our great respect for the scriptures. We believe it takes work to really comprehend the scriptures. There are references and cultural context and euphemisms, idioms, uh, language and ideas that would have been a no-brainer for a Jewish audience in the first century, but for us it requires a bit of research. So we commit to that. We believe in that. That said, this is a sermon, so to speak. Matthew may have collected several important teachings of Jesus at different times and places, but he obviously intended for them to be read heard, recited together in concert. That is why the Sermon on the Mount was one of the first big passages of Scripture that I set to memory. So before we pray and sing and take communion, I'd love to just stop, take a minute, recite the Sermon on the Mount over you guys, because uh, I want us to remember where we've been for the last few months. It won't take that long, trust me. We'll sit back, listen, let the words of Jesus enter your mind and enter your heart and truly think about his final warning. Is that all right with you guys? Great.